0: Good morning, Hope. My name is Matt Tully, and my wife and I have been members at Hope for about 13 years, and uh, it's a joy to to preach to you this morning. So this morning, I want to begin our time together by reading a poem. And uh, for those of you rolling your eyes right now, maybe you don't love poetry. Uh, I understand. I'm probably in that category, but. This is a poem that I think you may be familiar with. My guess is that even if you don't know know the name of the poem, you've nevertheless heard a few of the lines. It's a poem that was written over 100 years ago and has been quoted by everyone from presidents to prime ministers, Nobel laureates to POWs, civil rights leaders to domestic terrorists. It's called Invictus, Latin for unconquered. And it was written by a man named William Ernest Henley in 1875. I want you to listen as I read three of the stanzas from this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet, the menace of the years finds me, and shall find me, unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Could there be a more powerful, a more vivid summary ...of the dominant worldview of our day than this poem. That last stanza in particular... ...with its defiant references to the straight gate... ...that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7... ...and the scroll of judgment that he mentions... ...in the book of Revelation... ...it stands as a stubborn ode to human autonomy... ...and self-determination. And then there's those last two famous lines... ...that you've probably heard before... I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And just a quick skim of the headlines, the news headlines that we read every day, is enough to prove that this is the worldview of our prevailing secular culture, the culture all around us, and sadly, also the culture in our hearts as well, all too often. Right? You do you. Believe in yourself. You have the power within yourself. Don't let anyone else define you. Be true to yourself. Well, in our passage today, we're going to be confronted by some hard teachings from Jesus. Hard teachings that short-circuit our addiction to self-determination. Hard teachings that confront our obsession with ourselves. We're going to see that these hard teachings offended people in Jesus's day and they still offend people in our day because it's teaching that calls into question the idea that we are the masters of our own fate that calls into question that we are are the captains of our own souls I've structured my message this morning around three key ideas three key questions that we're going to be answering as we walk through the passage together so if you take notes this could be your bullet points First, why are people so offended by Jesus? Second, how does Jesus respond to offended people? And third, how will you respond to Jesus? But before we jump in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can sense the temptation towards these ways of thinking in our own hearts. I can feel it. But God, when we know from your word and from our own experience with you that you have the words of eternal life, not us. We need to hear from you this morning. Strip away the resistance that we might have to your word today. Give us open hearts to what you want to say. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. That's our passage for today. This passage picks up right where Pastor Jared left off last week. It's the continuation of some teaching that Jesus is doing related to his identity as the bread of life. Remember what he says in verse 35 of chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he goes on in the rest of chapter 6 to call on people to feed on his flesh and drink his blood that they might have eternal life. And Jared did a great job helping us understand what was going on there. Why was he using that metaphor? And so we come to our passage today. Listen to verses 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, heard Jesus' teaching about being the bread of life, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So now we arrive at our first question we're trying to answer today. Why are people so offended by Jesus? I want to draw out three answers to that question that I think we see in this passage and in the whole chapter of John 6. First, as Jared mentioned last week, Jesus wasn't addressing the people's desire for physical food right food was expensive as Jared noted really expensive and so finding someone who could get you a free meal or maybe many free meals would have been pretty exciting for them let me try to make this sink in a little bit Uh, kids uh, imagine probably parents too Uh, imagine free Chick-fil-a after church for lunch for the rest of your life Uh, if Chick-fil-a was open on Sundays I don't know if you're like me, but I know we have at least once, maybe more than once, we've like happily gotten to the van and headed towards Chick-fil-A after church for a lunch, only to realize a little bit too late, ah, they're not open. So despite the crowd's repeated questions about bread, they keep asking Jesus about bread, Jesus doesn't seem to really want to talk about physical bread, right? All he wants to do is talk about his identity as the bread of life. So that was likely a big part of why the crowds were offended by Jesus, why they started to get frustrated by him. And isn't that still the case today? Right? Some people reject Jesus today because they're more interested in the things of this earth, right? in money, in good food, in physical comfort, in earthly success, in power, and prestige. They don't see their spiritual need Because they're too focused on their earthly desires. And Jesus doesn't promise his people, he doesn't promise us these physical blessings. Quite to the contrary, if you pay attention to what Jesus actually tells us is coming for Christians, he calls us often to be willing to give up earthly blessings in pursuit of spiritual riches. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So that's the first reason people may have been offended by Jesus' teaching. The second reason, Jesus claimed that the only way to eternal life was to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And although we recognize this as a metaphor, a metaphor that points to this incredible spiritual reality A reality that we're gonna celebrate later this morning in the Lord's Supper, some of the people hearing Jesus for the first time probably didn't understand what he was actually saying. They thought he was speaking literally. As Pastor Jared mentioned last week, they may have thought he was advocating for some kind of cannibalism. Or at, at best, they maybe they didn't think that, but they thought that the metaphor he was using, the way he was speaking, was distasteful. It was offensive, it was disgusting. And while there probably aren't many non-Christians today who think we're cannibals, hopefully, uh, misunderstandings about our faith still run rampant among unbelievers. They still are a stumbling block for many unbelievers, right? Maybe they think that biblical Christianity is only for people who have their lives put together, right? We hear that from our unsaved friends and family. Maybe they think that the Bible is actually most fundamentally, ultimately, a book about sin And judgment. Or maybe they think that Christians hate unbelievers. And sadly, some of these misconceptions about our faith stem from our own lack of loving, gracious words and actions. So that's the second second reason people were offended. They misunderstood something central about what Jesus was saying. And then third, many people found Jesus is teaching offensive because he claimed to be the only path to true life. Remember what he said in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You want life? You want true life? Then you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man. You must come to Jesus. Not even the manna that God miraculously provided the Israelites in the wilderness— And by extension, Moses himself and the whole Mosaic law that Israel loved, not even that could compare to the life that Jesus was offering in himself. Think of how that might have sounded to someone in that day. It probably sounded pretty crazy. It probably sounded pretty extreme. It probably sounded pretty arrogant and presumptuous. I mean, who is this guy anyways? Yeah, he did a cool magic trick with all that bread. We like that. We want more of that. But we know his mom and dad. Who does he think he is? But then Jesus takes it a little bit further. Look at verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's a little bit of a confusing statement. What's he talking about? Rather than try to diffuse the situation, Jesus seemingly ups the ante. Right? He essentially says, you think you're offended now? because I claim to be the only source of true life and because I said that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, just wait until you see me seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, which is where I actually came from. So I think his original hearers correctly understood something about what Jesus was saying here. They understood that he was making a bold, startling claim to divinity here. He's making himself equal to God. Something he's already done in John and something he'll continue to do throughout the rest of the book. And again, we see the offense of this kind of exclusive claim of the Bible today, especially the idea that Jesus is the only source of true life and salvation. Rather than affirming the inherent dignity and goodness and the power of the human spirit... The clear teaching of the Bible resounding on each and every page is that of human frailty and weakness and dependence. This book, this book says that we are desperately sick and that the only remedy for that sickness is the undeserved grace of God. This book calls us to repent of our rebellion, of our hostility, that we might find mercy. In short, this book says to us that God is God and we are not. Now, that's not to say, don't misunderstand, that this book isn't also a book of hope and grace and love and mercy. It is those things. We know that to be true if we are Christians, but we can only experience that hope and grace and love as we humble ourselves, acknowledging our need for God's mercy in Christ. one point of application here before we move on as christians we must not shy away from the clear teachings of the bible especially that those that the world deems offensive especially as biblical christianity continues to be further marginalized from the center of our secular culture yes we are called to clarify misunderstandings as we can yes we want to speak winsomely and compassionately with love to those who don't yet believe. And yes, we want to be careful not to add anything to the clear teaching of Scripture, confusing the doctrines of man with the doctrines of God, something that Christians have been guilty of in the past. But as you do those things, be sure you're not trying to fix, fix the clear teaching of God's Word. God doesn't need you to make His Word more palatable to a hostile world. He calls us, each of us, our mandate is to faithfully and lovingly proclaim the truth, leaving the results up to him. And just as we see that in Jesus' day, people were offended by that, people rejected Jesus himself, we shouldn't be surprised when people are still offended by his word today. So that leads us to our next question. How does Jesus respond to offended people? We know why they were offended, some of the reasons, But Jesus is going to further pull back the curtain, so to speak, and give us a little bit of a deeper understanding of what's going on. Listen as I read verses 63 to 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In response to their grumbling, Jesus says something really interesting, maybe something a little bit surprising. He says, the spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. And I I want you to try to remember, I know it can be hard sometimes from week to week, but try to remember, we've heard this contrast before, the contrast of spirit versus flesh. This echoes what Jesus said earlier to Nicodemus about being born again in John 3. In essence, he's saying, your ultimate need is spiritual, not physical. And I'm here to meet that spiritual need in myself. But you're too focused on filling your stomachs to notice what I'm doing. But I think it's even more than that. Just like he emphasized with Nicodemus, here Jesus once again, I think, is highlighting the sovereign work of the Spirit to bring sinners to himself. Remember in John 3, Jesus uses the metaphor of the wind, of the Spirit's regenerating work. The Spirit is a wind that comes in and causes us to be born again. And it blows where it wishes. We, We can't predict it. We can't control it. It's like wind. Well, similarly here in verse 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And this echoes something that we heard last week. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So I want to pause for a moment on this and camp out a little bit on what Jesus is saying here. And, and while Jared did hit on this last week, I think it's worth taking another couple of minutes to think through this again because Jesus brings us back to this again in our passage. He kind of restates what he's already said. It is true that we must willingly come to Jesus to be saved. We must come in faith. We must repent of our sins. We must trust in what Jesus has said, and we must choose to follow him. That is all true. And yet Jesus says that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus locates the cause of our coming to him squarely in God's choice of us. So the question for you, and for me, and for all of us, the question for Christians through the centuries who have wrestled with this is, what do you make of that? How does that make you feel? If you're like me, this might seem like a bit of a difficult truth, Uh, both to understand, that's the first step, how do I put these things together in my mind, and then maybe even to accept, to love. And this teaching would have been just as difficult for Jesus' original hearers as it is for us today. Why? I think because it calls into question our control. Right? Our control of not just the world out there, but also the world in here. You know, I I can't control the weather. And we have had some extreme weather in the last few days. We have smoke. The air quality is terrible today. I wish I could turn on more wind and blow it all away. Back to Canada. Get out of here. I can't can't control the weather. But even the wind and the sea obey Jesus. I can't control world affairs and the decisions of world leaders. But the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I can't even get the grass in my yard to grow consistently to my deep shame and frustration. But when God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, what happened? It was so. And you know what else I can't control? I can't control my own darkened heart. A heart naturally inclined away from God. A heart that is naturally an enemy of God. But God has the power to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And cause us to come to him. That is our hope. That is the hope of the Christian life. That God works within our hearts and draws us to himself. Christian, when was the last time that you stopped to consider that God was drawing you to himself... ...long before you ever loved him. That God set his love on you... ...long before you were born. That is a wonderful... ...a glorious truth that should fill our hearts... ...with gratitude and worship... ...and awe. And yet, this doctrine can also be hard to accept. Because it strikes at the heart... ...of our sense of autonomy and self-determination. It calls into question the idea that we are in the driver's seat of our lives, that we are the captains of our own souls. The late pastor and theologian James Montgomery Boyce was right when he said, quote, nothing is more calculated to arouse the ire and rebellion of the human heart than this teaching. But it's true, and Christ did not hesitate to proclaim it. So that brings us to our final section of the passage this morning and our final question. How will you respond to Jesus? That's the question facing Jesus' original hearers 2,000 years ago. And that's the question facing you and me today and tomorrow and every day of the rest of our lives. Listen as I read verses 66 to 71. After this, after all of this hard teaching from Jesus... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So these last few verses present a stark contrast between those who respond to Jesus with faith versus those who respond with unbelief. After all of that uncomfortable, confusing, offensive teaching, all the things that Jesus has said, many of the people who had been following him decide they've had enough right? He's too focused on spiritual things. He doesn't seem like he's going to give us more bread. He's too hard to understand. He's using metaphors and and language that just seems offensive to me. He's too exclusive in his claims. He's making himself out to be equal with God. And so what do many of his followers do? They turned back and they no longer walked with him. They left. At the end of the day, they thought they were better off without Jesus than with him. And as the crowds disperse, Jesus turns to the twelve, his inner circle, and he asks them a simple question. Do you want to go away as well? And What a profound, uh, penetrating, scary question that is. It's a question that some of you may have wrestled with yourself. All too often, we hear or we read about another person abandoning the Christian faith, right? We hear these stories a lot these days. Or maybe they're abandoning anything resembling biblical Christianity. We all know people who, after seemingly following Christ for years, decide they've had enough and they can't take it anymore. And so they go away. And this can leave us asking ourselves, do you want to go away as well? Have you felt that before? Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever wondered to yourself, is following Jesus really worth it? Well, if that's you, and I think if we're honest, we've all been there to different degrees at different points in our life. We all wrestle with this. I want you to pay attention right now. Pay attention to how Jesus responds to this question from Jesus. Because his response to Jesus is packed full, packed full of stabilizing truth and hope-filled wisdom for us. Lord, to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the holy one of god what an incredible confession of faith that we have from peter here and i want to want to look at three things in this confession that i want us to notice i want to draw out because i think they're going to encourage us this morning first peter rightly sees that jesus is our only true option That's what's behind that rhetorical question, Lord, to whom shall we go? Do you find Jesus hard to understand sometimes? I do. Do you find his teachings hard to accept sometimes? Yeah, I do. We've all been there, but what's the alternative? Look around at the other options, the world's answers to our longings for eternal life and true happiness. How's that working out? just one glance at those the world deems most successful, most powerful, most wealthy in the things of this earth, just one glance is enough to teach us that none of these things ultimately satisfy our deepest longings. None of them address our deepest guilt, our shame. None of them hold out to us the promise of eternal life, life restored to what it was meant to be. Only now, partially experienced, but fully and forever experienced when Christ returns. So first, Jesus is our only true option. Second, receiving this eternal life from Jesus means believing in Jesus. Faith is the means by which we receive Jesus. Right? And in doing so, we then receive eternal life that he offers us. It's not enough for us to know about Jesus. It's not enough for us to respect and appreciate Jesus. It's not even enough for us to follow Jesus from a distance. To truly receive Jesus and the eternal life that he offers, we must come fully and completely to Jesus. And that means trusting him, trusting him with our very lives. As Paul says in Romans 5:2, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So that's the second thing. We must believe in Jesus. And third, one last observation. Our faith must be in Jesus as he's revealed himself. Not in a Jesus of our own making. This is really important because I think this is actually really common in our world today. And also, sadly, in our churches today. Notice Peter's words. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that's That's not just nice, kind of reverent, elevated language, holy-sounding language. That's messianic language. That's language that speaks to Jesus' authority and his divinity, the things that he's been claiming for himself in this passage thus far. So when Peter says that he believes in Jesus, he's saying he believes in what Jesus has been saying about himself throughout this passage, even if he doesn't fully understand everything Jesus has been saying. The same is true for us today. None of us have all of our questions answered. And yet to be a Christian is to believe and hold tight to the Bible's core teachings about Jesus. That he was and is and forever will be the Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That he took on flesh and dwelt among us That he willingly bore our sin and our shame when he went to the cross, dying in our place to atone for our sins. That he rose again from the dead, bodily, securing for us us salvation in him. And that he now lives in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, but will one day return to judge those who reject him and to save those who believe in his name. That is the Jesus of the Bible. And that is the only Jesus who has the power to save us. And I trust that's the Jesus that we know and love. Follow along as I read the last two verses of our passage where Jesus responds to Peter's faithful confession in a surprising way. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus once again reminds his inner circle of a crucial thing that he's already hit on. Right, he chose them first. He was the initiator. And because of this, he's not surprised by the rejection, the betrayal that is yet to come for him. Right, this verse is an ominous preview of the next dark chapter of Jesus' life. And yet, even still, Jesus is in the driver's seat. Jesus is in control. I want to conclude our time together this morning with a few confronting questions for each of us. First, a question for the non-Christian who might be here today. Uh, It's a simple question. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of what he says about himself in this passage? Will you move toward him in faith or away from him in doubt? Will you receive him as spiritual bread from heaven, bread that you need desperately? Will you come to him in faith? Or will you you settle for the temporary satisfactions of earthly food and drink, of earthly autonomy and fulfillment, all of which fade away in time? Scripture teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I ask you, believe in Jesus today. Now a question for Christians. Are you ashamed of anything that Jesus has said in his word? Have you been tempted to look for words of life in other places? Make no mistake, God's word is offensive to this world. Despite the world's best attempts to strip Jesus of his power either by distorting him or ignoring him or killing him. His words demand a response from all people. And as Christians, we're called to proclaim his word, knowing full well that many will reject it. They'll reject him, and they'll reject us. Jesus tells us this later in John 7 when he says, If the world hates you, and the world will hate you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, when we're rejected, we're in good company. Do you remember what the title of that poem, Invictus, means? It means unconquered. And it desperately, vainly celebrates human strength, even in the face of death's looming shadow. It celebrates human self-sufficiency, even as it stubbornly rejects divine dependence. But there's only one unconquered one. One whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's only one whose life can never again be lost and whose kingdom will never end. In letting himself be conquered for our sake, he became unconquerable for all time. His name is Jesus. And to be his follower is to be a person conquered by his love. A love that addresses our deepest spiritual needs, not just earthly needs. A love that awakens faith within us, drawing us to the only source of true life. In response to William Henley's poem, another poet named Dorothea Dorothea Day penned a new version of Invictus, a profoundly Christian version titled, Not Unconquered, but Conquered. And here's what it says. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God that I know to be, for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that despite the menace of the years, keeps me and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our king. You are our savior. And we come to you. We love you. We need you. Save us from our sin. Save us from our guilt. Save us from the evil powers of this world. And deliver to us the true life, the eternal life that you secured through us, through your broken broken body, through your spilled blood, and through your powerful resurrection. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.